Welcome back to Common Law, a podcast from the University of Virginia School of Law. I'm Risa Golubuck, the Dean. And I'm Leslie Kendrick, the Vice Dean. It's hard to believe this is the last episode of the season, Leslie. It feels like no time has passed since we kicked off this season on When Law Changed the World, talking about the rise of the anti-smoking movement with Sarah Myloff. But it also feels like years have happened outside of the show in our real world, from a presidential impeachment to a worldwide pandemic. It's so true. It really highlights how your life can change just in an instant and that we're making history and shaping law every day. Even though much of our attention is now on the pandemic, there's another looming problem facing the world that could similarly alter our lives, climate change. And our guest today will help us understand a pivotal moment in the fight to mitigate climate change. Harvard Law Professor Richard Lazarus has written a book about the Supreme Court case, Massachusetts versus Environmental Protection Agency. The book is called The Rule of Five, Making Climate History at the Supreme Court. Welcome to the show, Richard. Delighted to be here. Richard, you've argued 14 cases before the United States Supreme Court yourself. Why did you choose this case to focus on for your book? Well, uh, this was the most significant environmental law decision ever handed down by the United States Supreme Court. Uh, it was immediately hailed as environmental law's Brown v. Board of Education, and no case is significant as Brown v. Board of Education. But it led to the first international climate accord, the Paris Agreement in 2015, uh, an historic moment for the world, uh, and the Paris Agreement would not have happened without Massachusetts for a CPA. So I had a sense in the beginning, I knew the arc of my story. Uh, and then I learned a lot more as I did the research. And then, of course, some things changed after 2015 as well. So, so take us back to the very beginning. How did the case get started? Well, the case got started literally with a guy named Joe. Uh, and that's Joe Mendelson. Joe Mendelson worked for a group that no one has ever heard of, called the Center for Technology Assessment, a public interest organization in Washington, D.C. It's the late 1990s. Uh, it's 1998, so a good decade before the Supreme Court to decide the case. And Joe worked for this group, uh, and he, Joe was just fed up. Uh, he had gone to GW Law School, George Washington Law School. He was a second-generation environmental lawyer interested in issues like climate change, and he had got fed up as he watched the Clinton administration year after year after year not do anything on climate change. They did a lot of really important stuff during the Clinton administration on environmental issues, but not on climate, which is particularly frustrating for environmentalists like Joe, because Al Gore was vice president of the United States. He had written the book in 1992 called Earth in the Balance on how climate change was the biggest threat facing humankind, an existential threat, um, threatening sort of enormous, potentially catastrophic consequences uh, on the planet. Yet the Clinton administration just wouldn't actually regulate greenhouse gas emissions during eight years. So by the end of 1990s, Joe's fed up. Uh, he, he works on a petition to challenge the Clinton EPA. He works on it late at night uh, by his baby daughter's crib. Uh, and he's under enormous pressure not to do it. All the big environmental groups in the country were saying, don't do it. Don't challenge the Clinton administration. Uh, this is a big mistake. What was it that he was going to ask them to do? He decided that he was going to file a petition with EPA to require them to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from new motor vehicles in the United States. He looked at the Clean Air Act, uh, the statute which had been in existence in 1970, and he said, it's quite clear to me you have a mandatory obligation here, EPA. 
But the statute provides in Section 202 uh, of the Clean Air Act provides that if the administrative EPA, that's the person who runs the Environmental Protection Agency, determines uh, that emissions of any air pollutant for motor vehicles may reasonably endanger public health and welfare, the administrator has to regulate those emissions for motor vehicles. And Joe looked at that statute and said, well, this is easy. Greenhouse gases, they're clearly air pollutants. So the only question is whether they reasonably determined to endanger public health and welfare. Well, that too was easy. By 1998, uh, the science was, there was consensus across the United States, across the globe. So Joe just couldn't wait any longer. In 1998, he drafted a petition under enormous pressure not to do it. And in 1999, he finally decided he's gonna rock the boat. He walked the petition down to EPA. He filed it by hand with the Environmental Protection Agency, and he sent a copy of it to Vice President Gore at the White House for good measure. So what did the Clinton administration do with it when they got it? They did nothing with it. Uh, they sat on it. Uh, because it wasn't actually clear that there was any particular right to file the petition or any obligation on the part of EPA at all uh, to actually respond to it. So the administration did nothing with it except one thing. Uh, to their great shock and the shock of many, they lost the presidential election uh, in 2000. George Bush was the new president. So at the very end of the Clinton administration, they decided to follow notice about the receipt of that petition to trigger within the agency some obligation to sort of think about it and consider it. Uh, what one departing Clinton administration official described as leaving a turd on the doorstep to the next administration. Uh, that's how they view Joe's petition. So this was just, they, they were making some work for the incoming administration. Right. <laughs> that's great. So, uh, so they leave the turd. Uh, and what does the Bush administration do with it once they get in office? Well, it's interesting. And this is part of the story we think most people would not have had any idea about. And that is when the Bush administration comes in, there was every reason to believe they were going to aggressively regulate greenhouse gas emissions. During the 2000 election between Al Gore uh, and George Bush, only one candidate made a pledge to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, and that wasn't Al Gore. It was George Bush. Uh, on September 29, 2000, he made a pledge to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. About two and a half weeks later, about actually four or five weeks later, everything had changed because all of them were outmaneuvered by one person, and that was Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, he had flipped the administration. Bush reneged on his campaign pledge with a letter to Congress, and that letter included an important statement. He said, not only am I not going to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, I also don't have authority to do it. The Clean Air Act does not authorize the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. They are not air pollutants under the Clean Air Act. So he not only answered a policy question, he answered a question of law. And that was a, that was a shift on that legal question. Absolutely. It was a shift because EPA had taken the position that greenhouse gases were air pollutants. Uh, they had done that during the Clinton administration. They had never actually regulated them, but they had taken position saying that greenhouse gases uh, were air pollutants. All right. So eventually EPA denies Joe Mendelson's petition. Is that what happens next? Yeah. Basically, once the president of the United States has said that greenhouse gases are not air pollutants, uh, the decision has been made. It's been made for EPA. Uh, so at that point, EPA had no choice. 
Uh, their only choice was to deny the petition. So once petition is denied, uh, then they can challenge that decision in court. They now have a final decision by the agency, and they can bring a challenge on the Administrative Procedure Act. It's not at all clear EPA ever had to have acted on the petition at all, but once they acted on the petition, uh, then they can bring a lawsuit in court. By the time the lawsuit is brought, which is now in the fall of 2003, so we're now five years from when he drafted the petition, one, uh, four years from when he walked it down uh, to EPA. At that point, Joe Mendelson is no longer alone. Uh, he's got a dozen states on his side, about two or three dozen national environmental groups on his side. Uh, they call themselves the carbon dioxide warriors uh, as they're challenging uh, EPA. Uh, so he's part of a, of a huge team uh, that is bringing this case. And the case is brought in the first instance in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Now, as most people realize, usually you start cases in trial court. Here would be in federal trial court. But under the Clean Air Act, this decision was made by EPA under the Clean Air Act, this kind of decision goes to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in the first instance. So it goes straight to the Court of Appeals. It doesn't have to do trial first. And the D.C. Circuit has exclusive jurisdiction uh, over these issues. No other federal court of appeals can hear it. So this case is brought in front of the D.C. Circuit, which is often referred to as the second most important uh, court in the United States after the Supreme Court. Well, the court nominally decided the EPA wins. Uh, the vote is two to one to dismiss uh, the Mendelton petition. So the carbon dioxide warriors lose at the D.C. Circuit, and in the normal course of things, for this case to get to the Supreme Court, they would have to petition the Supreme Court to grant review and hear the case. But as you talk about in your book, there was some question among the environmentalists about whether rolling the dice with the Supreme Court was such a good idea. So the biggest fight first happened on whether to go for a rehearing on Bonk, let alone any further review. Um, and everyone, including Joe Mendelson, who was a fighter, everyone said, fold our tents. One person thought that they should keep going, a guy named Jim Milkey. Uh, Jim Milkey was a career attorney uh, with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. He headed uh, their environment division of that office. And Milkey felt strongly about the case. Uh, he didn't think they should uh, acquiesce uh, in this loss. Uh, but it took a lot of uh, courage uh, by Milky to convince the court to take this case uh, was Herculean an effort uh, in, in any context, since the, there was no lower court decision, let alone a circuit conflict uh, of any kind. And you add to that the historic fact that the environmental groups never succeeded in getting cert granted. So there was not, not a like a snowball's chance in hell uh, that this case would ever get granted. Even then they fought over it. And the amazing thing is it was granted. So how did the snowball have a chance in hell? What made the court take it? How did they persuade them? Uh, I think there are a few things. Uh, one is David Tatel's dissent. I uh, think David Tatel's dissent played a, a significant role. Tatel is highly regarded uh, by the justices. So I think to some extent, his dissent was a cert petition. So that's one thing that played a role. The other thing that played a role is the cert petition filed by the carbon dioxide warriors. Jim Milkey did the first draft, and he managed to, for the first time, achieve consensus among the carbon dioxide warriors. Everyone agreed that his petition was terrible. Uh, it was awful. And even he realized when he read all their criticism how bad it was. Uh, so Jim Milkey, with about three and a half weeks left before the petition was due, did a terrific thing. He brought in um, a ringer, 
Uh, he brought in a law professor from Georgetown University, Lisa Heinzelin, uh, and asked Lisa Heinzelin if she would draft a cert petition. Uh, Lisa Heinzelin had formerly worked for the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, so she was known to them. She was a brilliant young scholar, terrific teacher. Uh, she had clerked for Justice Brennan on the United States Supreme Court. She's a great writer, engaging, fun. Uh, in very short order, Lisa wrote a very engaging cert petition. She understood how to try to get their attention to the case. She made the case about ad law. She didn't make the case about climate. Uh, I mean, those of us who are impeached environmental law, our hearts may go pitter-patter uh, when we think about climate change. The justice's hearts don't go pitter-patter for climate change. They go pitter-patter for administrative law. Uh, these are the kinds of issues they care and they think about it. So she pitched a case, administrative law case. She made the first issue of the case, which is not at all logical, uh, about whether or not EPA had abused his discretion in deciding not to decide the issue. She made the second question, uh, whether or not greenhouse gas and air pollutants. That's the issue they cared about, but she had a hard time making that the first issue since no judge in the majority below had even addressed the issue. So it made it into this big, uh, deal. I, I, who knows what actually uh, made the difference, uh, but it was a shocking moment. And when the court, on, I think it was June 26th, if I remember correctly, 2006, they granted cert in that case. The, pet the petitioners, carbon dioxide warriors, they were stunned. They, none of them thought this case would be granted. Uh, everyone was basically saying the same thing, holy shit, uh, or the like. Uh, they couldn't believe they had a case. And Jim Milkey recalled to me later how when he saw the cert granted, he actually thought, what have I done? Because he knows it takes four votes to grant cert. It takes five votes to win. And he realized at that point that if they took this case up and now it was up, they had the biggest environmental case ever and they lost, it would be a disaster, particularly if they lost an Article Three standing, because that could shut down uh, climate litigation in all the federal courts forever. So the case ends up being decided, I believe, in the spring of 2007. And this is uh, the Roberts Court. And they've got questions both about standing for the states and for the various other petitioners. And then the, the substantive questions about EPA's authority under the Clean Air Act and the, the outcome is fairly surprising. What's the, what's the decision? Well, the outcome is surprising. The opinion is written by John Paul uh, Stevens, who I refer to as the Jedi Master uh, of the Supreme Court. Um, he writes the opinion for the court. Uh, it comes out April 2nd, uh, 2007. Uh, important thing to remember, though, is that there was nothing preordained, as you suggest, about this happening. As you may know, the argument is November 29th, the justices meet in conference in private on December 1st, so two days later, Friday morning. That's when they vote. And the tentative vote was five to four, uh, and Justice John Paul Stevens was the senior justice in the majority. That doesn't mean he's going to write the opinion for the court. That means he gets to decide who's going to write the opinion for the court. And as Justice Stevens has, has explained, that is a big decision. Because if it's five to four, uh, he has to make sure the person who writes the opinion for the court can keep those five. Because the votes at conference are just tentative. Uh, they're not at all permanent. And people change their mind all the time. 
So Stevens is sitting there on December 1st trying to think, who do I want to write this opinion? And he knows Justice Kennedy, he can't afford to lose a vote. He knows Justice Kennedy changes his mind on votes. So Stevens sits there and goes, do I assign it to myself or do I assign it to Justice Kennedy? If I assign Justice Kennedy, the odds are we'll keep the five. He'll be institutionally feel committed to writing opinion in a way he can sign it. Uh, and there's this that ownership you have of things once you start them. It's harder to leave. You can, but it's harder. Or do I assign it to myself and take the risk? Stephen decided to assign it to himself. So it took him eight drafts. It took him eight drafts to get his five votes. Uh, draft number one, he had four. Draft number two, he had four. On the eighth draft, he finally made enough compromise and qualifications to get Kennedy to join him. He still kept this very sweeping beginning, very strong opening statement. He made it about climate change. But on April 2nd, 2007, the opinion comes out. No one was expecting the opinion then. Uh, the case was argued in late November. You know when cases are generally going to come out. This is clearly going to be a 5-4 close one. Everyone assumed this is a May or late June decision. So no one was paying attention when the court walked out on April 2nd, uh, 2007, to announced opinions that day. None of the carbon dioxide warriors were paying no, any attention to the court. They didn't even know the court was coming out at that point. So everyone was stunned when it came out and stunned with the result. So you've already said, um, you know, how huge a case this was for uh, environmental law and and for climate change and making it, you know, akin to to Brown versus Board of Education. Are there are there lessons that you think this case offers outside of of that, uh, you know, that of it being a capstone case? What what other kinds of lessons do you take? Well, one is um, what a difference good lawyering could make. There was really good lawyering done. And in the Supreme Court in this case. And this case could not have been done without good, really good lawyering. Knowing how to frame a case, knowing how to pitch it, knowing how to, to acknowledge your weaknesses in a case, uh, which they did very well, picked the oral argument, not to, not to sort of argue something is strong when it's not strong, when you lose credibility, how to narrow their ask and make it a small ask to possibly try to win the case and then celebrate big later, the difference a good lawyer can make. Uh, and this case, by winning it, by establishing greenhouse gases were air pollutants, uh, every single thing the Obama administration did was based on Massachusetts EPA. All the greenhouse gas emissions and all that was necessary for Paris. So the first lesson I would say is a difference good lawyer uh, could make. Uh, and, and this uh, case, among others, I think underscores something I've always told my uh, students interested in environmental law which is the best environmental lawyers are the best lawyers. Uh, you can be environmentalist, that's great, but you have to be an excellent lawyer first uh, and not just an excellent environmental lawyer. The second lesson I would say is what a difference one person can make. Um, in this case, along the line, there was, at different times, there were individuals who were extremely courageous and it made a difference. Um, a third lesson I would take away from the case uh, is don't assume history. There's a reason why my book is called Making Climate History in the Supreme Court. One of my unfavorite arguments of all time, which I hear people uh, say, uh, those of my generation, younger generation, is that if they don't like the position of someone else, they say, you're on the wrong side of history. I hate that argument uh, because it assumes history. It assumes history will be 
what you think it should be. Uh, you don't you don't assume history. You fight for history. You make history. Uh, in this case, they made history, but they made it by fighting for it, by being smart, uh, and by being strategic, uh, by being nimble, knowing when to ask small, and knowing when to ask big. Um, and the, I think the last lesson I would take away um, is even a case as monumentally important as Massachusetts versus EPA um, is still just a Supreme Court decision. Uh, and Supreme Court decisions themselves, the votes of five justices, is never enough for truly long-lasting transformative change. Brown v. Board of Education did not end racism in the United States. Uh, it did not end segregation in our schools. It's taken, it's still fighting for that across this country. Uh, it took legislation afterwards. It took changes of attitude, incredibly important cases, but it takes more than just five votes of justices. Uh, and same is true for Massachusetts EPA. Incredibly important decision. Uh, but it's a decision of the Supreme Court. You want transformative change, long-lasting change. In the United States, that's done through the ballot box. It's not done through five votes of justices. It's done by individual votes of people across the country. Uh, that's how you change history. Uh, that's how you have long-lasting change. Uh, and the climate change issue is one which requires long-lasting, enduring laws. You can't just solve it one night. You've got to maintain the laws, maintain the emissions reductions uh, over time. Uh, so really, the longer-term lesson of this is incredibly important decision. But if Massachusetts EPA's promise, the promise of that ruling, as we realized, not unlike the promise of Brown v. Wright education, is going to require the votes of individuals, courageous individuals, uh, people not just willing to lawyer, but people willing to vote. And we have a very important election coming up on many issues, but certainly including on the climate change issue. This has been such a great conversation, Richard. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Richard. So where Richard ended, Risa, makes me think a lot about your work, that uh, cases don't get decided in a vacuum and that legal history and history is made by lots of different actors. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing, Leslie. Funny you should uh, funny you should mention that. Uh, you know, the book is so fabulous in that it's really telling this story of what happens to a case, right, from the very beginning and before it's even a case all the way through the court and then afterward. And I think a lot of the time when people think about what is a case or what is law, they start and end with the Supreme Court and its decision. Um, but I, I write a lot in my legal history about how a court does a court doesn't even take a case until a, a plaintiff has come forward until a lawyer has decided there's a legal issue here um, and so you know one of the things he does so beautifully is show the both within litigation itself how many different actors play a part in changing the world through the law um, in identifying that there's a harm in classifying that harm as a in a legal categorical way in in even in what facts they think are important um, so that litigation 
question neither starts nor ends at the court. And on the backside, which he says so well, is, you know, the, the court isn't the end of the story, right? They're a punctuating moment. They intervene into this larger milieu. Um, uh, and they obviously set terms and they set baselines and they, they give power to one side or the other coming out of the case. But then everybody regroups uh, and they start, you know, from the new baseline thinking, uh, what is it that we can do? How do we change the world to look like we want it to look? And that's different for, you know, many different actors. And then beyond that, is uh, outside of litigation is policy and politics and all of these other organizations that are all operating not only in a litigation context, but uh, in all those other arenas as well. It made me think about some of the stories we've heard in some other cases. So when he talks about Joe Mendelson deciding to to uh, walk this walk this complaint over, you know, it makes me think about some of the individual actors that Sarah Milov talked about who kicked off the anti-smoking movement. Some of which were involved with litigation, but others were involved in other types of political action. Um, or the the council in New York Times versus Sullivan. It was the New York Times's local Alabama council that thought they should make the um, the constitutional claim and none of the fancy New York lawyers thought to make that. You know, it, it's all of these uh, ways that um, folks who are not the Supreme Court justices and they're not the Supreme Court litigators, they can have an enormous impact on the way the law ends up getting shaped. And we've heard so many stories about that this season. It's been really interesting. Absolutely. And, it, you know, I think it's one of my favorite themes as a scholar. And I know it's one of our favorite themes as legal educators, right, which is the power of lawyers. And uh, and I think people think, oh, Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she's on the court, there are there are individual lawyers people can uh, can picture and imagine as having a lot of power. But I don't think people always um, appropriately estimate how much power all lawyers have to bring cases to to make law change. And I think that's what we've been seeing. Um, I think Joe Mendelson is a great, a great example here. Um, and as you mentioned, we've had so many over the course of the season of people who aren't famous and they don't seem like they wield tremendous amounts of power, but that's what having a law license enables you to do. It's set in motion this whole apparatus of, of legal change and legal process. Obviously, it doesn't always lead to the biggest environmental case that the Supreme Court's ever seen, but um, um, but it creates that possibility. Something that I didn't realize was the bit that he told about um, the Bush administration coming in, being generally kind of open to and favorable toward climate change regulation. And, you know, that that's something that I just I didn't remember um, from from that time period. And you know, it's striking there, too, just how um Politics can change over time. The sort of political valence of different ideas can change over time. And, you know, that's that's something that's happening outside of the courtroom and out, outside of litigation. Um, and it's something about the interaction between law and politics and culture. Um, and that, that, that was just a really kind of striking example of that, that that I had lost track of. Me too. And um, as we come to the end of the season, that makes me think, Leslie, about the pandemic more generally and the theme that we've been talking about on the podcast and when law changed the world. And it really strikes me that 
we're talking about law in a broad sense and our different stories have been about different kinds of laws at different levels of government and different kinds of actors. Um, but one of the, one of the themes that you can see all throughout the season is really the power of government in it and its regulatory power and its spending power, uh, starting way back with Sarah Myloff and, uh, the tobacco questions where the government really did regulate soon enough and, uh, took a while before the lawyers, you know, were able to force the issue and really step in. And, um, and I think we see that all the way throughout. And here we are, you know, in this pandemic, asking similar questions about the role of government, the power of government, both as a, a spender and as a regulator uh, and, and as a purveyor of legal rules that um, not all law is the same. Uh, and even as we talk about the power of different actors, some actors really have a lot more power to shape uh, what societal responses uh, are going to look like to these major disruptions in the world. That's so true. And being in this moment, you realize we are in one of these historic moments right now um, where different people's decisions, individual decisions, big policy decisions, uh, they really do have a huge impact on people's lives. Um, and having having talked about so many different um uh, pieces like that from from the past and that are ongoing, the anti-smokers movement, pandemics of the past, climate change, to realize we're in a moment like that right now. Um, I mean, I guess you always we're always in a moment like that on some level, but it's really, really striking right now. I agree. Striking and humbling uh, <laughs> and uh, and makes me grateful to be able to be part of these conversations. So thank you for for this wonderful season. Same here. Thank you so much. It's been a real joy. And although we're all living in uncertain times, you know, having the through line of this podcast throughout all of it um, with all of our wonderful producers and our wonderful guests and my wonderful co-hosts that has made a huge difference. So I hope uh, I, I, I want to say our, to our listeners, too, thank you for listening. And I hope that it's, it's provided you with some amount of through line as well. Here, here. We hope to see you next season. That's it for this season of Common Law. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about when law changed the world and on the flip side, when the world changed the law. If you're tired of social distancing, you can still get closer to us online by telling us what you think. Rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you hear the show. To learn more about this topic or catch up on other episodes, visit us at commonlawpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Common Law UVA. We'll see you again in the fall when our podcast resumes. And Risa, I hope we're back in the studio to see each other too. I hope so too, Leslie. Common Law comes to you from the University of Virginia School of Law. Today's episode was produced by Sidney Holloman, Robert Armengall, and Mary Wood with help from Virginia Kane. This show was recorded remotely via our cell phones. I'm Risa Golubuff. And I'm Leslie Kendrick. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next season. <laughs>